This week's TribCast is sponsored by Are You Ready to Vote? Find out what approved forms of photo ID you'll need and what to do if you don't possess and cannot reasonably obtain one at votetexas.gov or by calling 1-800-252-VOTE. Brought to you by the Office of the Texas Secretary of State. And the Poinsett Firm is an Austin-based lobby firm guiding businesses in solving their high-stakes problems at the Texas Capitol. Learn more at poinsett.co. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. It's the first, well, not the first week, the second week of early voting Tribcast. The first week of the traditional early voting period Tribcast. My name is Matthew Watkins. I'm your uh, host for today, uh, managing editor for news and politics for the Texas Tribune. Today I am joined by three of our political reporters for an all politics Tribcast. We have with us uh, politics reporter Alex Samuels. Howdy. Politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you missed him. He's back. <laughs> and I believe she's here. She has blackened her screen so we cannot see her. But I, I hear that Cassie Pollock has joined us too. Wow. All right. I'm here, folks. Um, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't think that I didn't. I didn't. I don't think that people who are listening to this podcast can uh, can see our, our screens. Can they? Just trying to paint a picture for the the listener, Cassie. All right. All right. <laughs> Only one right. or seven of using Skype and Zoom. <laughs> Most of us have figured out by now. <laughs> That's right. All right. So as I mentioned, we are in the early voting period, and as of yesterday, according to the Texas Secretary of State. 5,315,655 people voted, have voted early so far. That is more than the total number of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. And uh, the general consensus, although it's kind of a strange year and hard to compare, is that turnout seems pretty high so far in this early voting period. Alex, you've kept an eye on this a little bit. What stands out to you so far about the the turnout we're seeing in Texas? Yeah, so as you just mentioned, I think actually just before we hopped on this podcast, Texas Election Source said that of those 5.3 million, that's 31% of the state's registered voters, and it's only we're only through day eight of registered, uh, or sorry, we're only through day eight of early voting. So I think their analysis there was early voting or early turnout is likely to exceed the total number of early votes cast both in 2008 and 2012. Uh, And of course, we are tracking early voting in the state's 10 largest counties. We're seeing a lot of national and statewide attention to early vote numbers in Harris. And, you know, we also focused on Denton County a little bit earlier in the week. Of course, Harris is more, you know, the blue, it's, you know, more reliably blue than Denton County, which has some rural pockets of the state. So it'll be interesting to see if this, these early voting numbers are good for Democrats or better for Republicans. 
Yeah, I mean, Patrick, I uh, I see on Twitter that this means the Democrats are going to win, right? I mean, that's basically just call off the election. Uh, the high turnout means uh, Texas well, we is blue this, now. You know, we, we see this every early voting period in Texas. There's obviously a lot of excitement about it increases, uh, which are more or less to be expected, given how fast growing of a state Texas is. Um, and there's always a lot of early speculation about who it favors. Um, and without, you know, party registration in Texas, we don't get as straightforward of answers with that. So instead, the, the numbers crunchers, the number crunchers look at uh, primary voting history of the people who are turning out. Um, and I, last time I looked at Derek Ryan's report, I think the one he had last night, the people with known Republican voting history had, a, you know, just a slight advantage over the people with known uh, Democratic primary voting history. But the big question is always those voters who are who are turning out, who don't have primary voting history or, or are new to the electorate altogether, um, you know, and they continue to make up a uh, not insignificant share of the early voters that we're seeing. And so um, it's it's always it's always a, a frustrating period for some political observers, at least at the beginning, because they want straight answers about who this is favoring. And it's, it's often not so straightforward of a, an assessment to make. That's right. It's a challenging thing to answer. You mentioned Derek Ryan's uh, report, something that uh, those of us who write about this pay attention to this kind of eat up every day that he puts it out. Derek Ryan being a Republican kind of GOP voting male expert and things like that. Um, his report uh, this week or yesterday that you cited said that 30.9 of um, uh, the early voters so far, 30.9 have kind of Republican primary history, but have never voted in a Democratic primary. On the other hand, 28.5% of those early voters have Democratic primary history and have not voted in a Republican primary. So yeah, as you said, that's a slight advantage for Republicans. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean every one of those voters is going to vote R or D, depending on their primary history. Sometimes that you know, local issues or various other things can affect that. But it is a smaller margin than both 2018 and 2016, which has caused some people to take some notice. The other thing that kind of stood out to me in Derek Ryan's report was his prediction that we will likely surpass 12 million people voting in this election. Uh, that, as he noted, would be a 71 percent turnout, which would be pretty astounding for Texas. Uh, 2016, the turnout was just under 60 percent. And I think people were pretty impressed by that, by Texas's, you know, fairly low standards um, of turnout historically in the vote. Uh, Cassie, what are the the campaigns? What are the people who are running for the House or the, the Senate or the various offices that are up for grabs here saying about this? Is it um, is it creating any kind of a buzz among candidates and politicians? Yeah, you know, I think the buzz is just that, uh, you know, and this is present on both Democrat and, and Republican sides. It's just this is completely uncharted territory, right? You know, if we're going to be surpassing 12 million votes uh, cast in this election, that's that's obviously setting a new record. And it's, uh, you know, nobody really knows what to expect. You can, uh, you know, log into twitter.com and, and read theory after theory on, uh, you know, what these numbers mean. Um, but uh, yeah, I think everyone's just just really kind of watching these numbers come in and, and nobody, I mean, you know, quite frankly, no one really knows what to make of it and nobody's going to know what to make of it until we actually see uh, what those, you know, what, until we see kind of where everyone went um, on election day. I was, of yeah. course, go ahead, Patrick. 
Well, I was going to say one point that's kind of stood out to me on you. You talk about turnout potentially topping 12 million voters. Um, and that's been the number that you've been hearing, a decent 11 to 12 million being the predicted uh, turnout, at least among some of the, the consultants I speak to throughout the election cycle. Um, one of the things I had an interview with John Cornyn uh, a few weeks ago, and one of the things that he noted, and if you look at the numbers, you can see this for yourself, but it was interesting just hearing him kind of marvel about it. When he was last on the ballot in 2014, there were 4.6 million voters in that entire U.S. Senate election. So he noted to win the election six years later, he's going to have to get all of the votes that he got in his that were the total number of votes and then more in that 2014 election. So for people who haven't been on the ballot in a while like him, it is just a totally different uh, environment. Right. Yeah, and I, I was, of course, joking when I said the election is over and Democrats are going to win. Uh, the, um, you know, one thing to just kind of, I think, keep in mind as we look at these numbers is just kind of how unprecedented this election is just in terms of how it's being run and the atmosphere it's being run. There's obviously the interest. Uh, Donald Trump has an effect of energizing both sides of the aisle and voters on both sides. But then there's also the coronavirus pandemic and all the changes that it has brought upon there. You know, one of the a good portion of the early votes that are coming in um, are mail-in ballots. We've seen about, uh, according to the SOS, um, a little bit under 520,000 mail-in ballots already um, submitted. Uh, and, you know, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong number here. We have uh, we have just under 700,000 early mail-in <clears throat> ballots already submitted, which I believe is more than the total amount of ones submitted in the uh, 2016 race. Um, and then you also have a longer early voting period. You know, Abbott extended this period by um, four uh, days, you know, added on an extra week minus um, the uh, minus the uh, Indigenous Peoples Columbus Day holiday um, last week. And we so and given that excitement, given the extra voting period, I mean, one of the questions that I think people are answering is how much of this is new voters coming out? How much of this is uh, people that just really were excited to cast their vote vote? And how much of this is maybe people avoiding Election Day because they don't want to be in the long lines and the crowds and things like that and might feel it's safer to vote early or to vote by mail? So, you know, we can see the projections, but I think it's hard to project when some of the kind of numbers you're seeing now don't really have precedent, both in terms of total amount, but also just, uh, you know, the circumstances that might be causing those numbers. So one of the big, you know, races that you already mentioned, Patrick, that, that people will be coming out here to vote for is the uh, John Cornyn, MJ Hagar race for U.S. Senate. This has been one that has, you know, it was really kind of a race that people had their eye on for a long time, but, you know, was fairly uneventful up to the past few weeks. But lately it's heated up both kind of in the tenor and the how the candidates are discussing each other, talking to each other, and also in the, the money coming in. Uh, what are you seeing right now uh, in that race? Yeah, I mean, the, probably one of the more uh, remarkable recent developments on the money side was the third quarter fundraising by the, the two candidates. Um, MJ Hager nearly doubled uh, John Cornyn's fundraising in the third quarter. Um, and perhaps I, I think more significantly, she totally erased his longtime cash on hand advantage. Uh, so as of the second quarter, 
Uh, Cornyn had $14 million in the bank, um, and she had less than a million. Um, if you recall at the time, she was still fighting for a party's nomination. Nonetheless, the third quarter comes around, and after all is said and done, she ends up eclipsing him in cash on hand, and now it entered the month of October with a slight cash on hand advantage. Um, you know, part of that was due to how much she raised in the third quarter. As I pointed out, she nearly doubled him, but part was also due to how much he spent in the third quarter. Um, but nonetheless, it's a pretty striking reversal of fortunes, given that really throughout this entire election cycle, you know, Cornyn has been uh, Cornyn and his massive financial advantage have been pretty reassuring to Texas Republicans who've had to kind of worry about mounting challenges in other places on the ballot, the presidential race, congressional races, state house races. Um, and at the end here, the money game has really um, has really switched, I would say. And in addition to that, you're also seeing a kind of a late Democratic outside group spending spree in the race. Last week, the top Democratic super PAC and Senate races, the Senate Majority PAC, announced uh, that they were going up with an $8.6 million TV buy. There's another major Democratic super PAC, Future Forward, that uh, just went on TV on Tuesday in the race, and they're spending at least an initial $4 million. Um, and perhaps even even more so concerning for, for Cornyn is there was a report in, in this uh uh, publication Recode uh, on Tuesday that this may be a part of a kind of coordinated ambush uh, on him in the final uh, in the final uh, two weeks of the race with Democratic donors, a coalition of Democratic groups coming together to spend as much as twenty eight million dollars um, in the in the home stretch here. And you know, Cornyn has you know one super PAC supporting him that has not been able to match the scale of a you know twenty eight million dollar investment, understandably so. Um, so. If you're him, you know, this is a pretty fluid, I think, an uncertain finale to this race. And again, it just is um, a pretty striking, uh, you know, reversal from where we were for much of this cycle where Cornyn was kind of viewed as this financial juggernaut um, and was really kind of reassuring to Texas Republicans for that for that reason. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty astounding to see Cornyn, you know, trailing in the cash on hand amount. Um just something that I, I don't think many of us would have expected back in July when MJ Hagar became the 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 Democratic nominee and, and you know barely had any money in the bank at that time. Alex, how much do you think Cornyn should be should be sweating now? I mean, he has led in the polls, you know, throughout. I think there are a lot of people who assume that he maybe there is a, a small chunk, maybe not a major chunk, but a small chunk, not insignificant chunk of voters who who could possibly go the Biden Cornyn route that um, is is how competitive does this race feel to you right now? Um, I think it feels, you know, a little less competitive than the presidential race. You know, in polls, we see, of course, varying, you know, Biden leading, Trump leading, and it's usually by single digits for either person. But it's what's been pretty consistent in U.S. Senate polling is Cornyn always maintains some sort of lead over Hagar, even if it's just um, within three or four percentage points. I believe we had a poll yesterday by Data for Progress, which we gave a shout out to in the blast, our premium evening newsletter. Um, and 12 percent of voters were undecided in the U.S. Senate race, but Hagar or sorry, Cornyn had a three-point lead over Hagar in that particular poll. Um, so like you said, I think there will be some voters, and I'm, I know that, uh, you know, there will likely be some voters who will do Biden or Cornyn, you know, but I think it's still, you know, 
pretty solidly a Republican seat. Patrick, we've seen, you know, some interesting comments coming from Cornyn in the past week or so. He made a lot of news over the weekend for for telling the editorial board, you know, what did he he compared his relationship with Trump to uh, a, a, a wife who thinks she can change her husband. Um, that got a lot of news, got a lot of criticism. He, he seemed to then kind of come back a little bit. Right. And, and express <laughs> support for Trump. Can you can you walk us through that little mini? Yeah, I'm reluctant to even paraphrase it. I don't want to get in <laughs> trouble. Um, but yeah, I mean, this Fort Worth Star Telegram interview got a lot of attention, but this has been this general sentiment, at least, is what he has been telling editorial boards um, throughout this uh, fall season about his relationship with Trump. He's kind of gone into these interviews with this ready to go answer um, that he's had some disagreements with Trump, but he prefers to express them to the president privately. And with a president like Trump, as volatile and mercurial as he is, there's no benefit to airing your uh, disagreements out in public. So it's a sentiment that he has um, expressed before the way it was uh, you know, brought up and it paired with that um, that spousal comparison uh, certainly got a lot of a new attention to the, the theme um, in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram uh, interview over the weekend. Um, but, you know, I think there's there's you know, there's no doubt that um, as this election has gotten closer, he's been a little more overt in, in voicing that sentiment, um, you know, whether that's a deliberate effort to, you know, separate from Trump. I know his team disputes that, that this is some kind of coordinated strategy. But if you look at the poll numbers, you can just conclude for yourself that, you know, tr- Trump is, is, as Alex pointed out, presidential race has been much more competitive Um than the U.S. Senate race. And so if Cornyn is looking for some some separation, it totally makes sense to me. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you know, some of this, I think you're you adjust your messaging a little bit depending on your audience. Right. And when you're when you're talking to a newspaper editorial board, um, a lot of times uh, we see uh, editorials from papers in the state and across the country who, you know, want to see a little bit more independence from their senator, want to see. Uh, not someone who kind of goes along with Trump all the time, but, you know, when he's he's talking to conservative radio audiences and things like that, you know, that's maybe part of the things that he emphasizes less. I mean, the other kind of messaging we've seen on in this race is just both of them, you know, being a little bit more willing to go after each other. Well, you, can you can you elaborate on the kind of line of attacks we've been seeing from Hagar and Cornyn? Yeah, I mean, Cornyn has honestly been more aggressive in these past few weeks, if that's any indication of where the week, uh, where the race is at. I mean, he has uh, gone negative on MJ Hager on TV. I think he's aired at least three attack ads against her at this point. Um, you know, he's focused on a number of things against her. He's focused on statements that she's made uh, that are supportive of a carbon tax. He's focused on, um, you know, her uh, saying in 2018 um, that, you know, she could support uh, a single payer health system should be noted that, you know, she is currently running on and and did emphasize in that previous race uh, support for a a public option. Um, He's also uh, run ads pointing to this criminal justice reform platform that she's expressed support for called Campaign Zero and pointing to some of the more incendiary parts of that that have that have cropped up through its its different iterations. Um, so he's really been emptying the research book on her in these past few weeks uh, in, in his TV ads. And her TV ads have been critical of him as well, but I would say not as not as not as fierce fierce and not as harsh. Um, you know, she's run some TV ads 
you know, blaming politicians like John Cornyn, Washington, D.C. politicians like John Cornyn for not doing enough early on to ensure that the pandemic would not be as bad as it, as it got. Um, you know, she's run an ad talking about how he's um, captive to party leaders and in, in pushing through this latest Supreme Court nomination. But really, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the attacking, honestly, if you look at the TV ads, has come has come via the Cornyn campaign. You know, and the, the thing is, is we, we take note about how this race is heated up is that Cornyn has been saying that this was going to be a competitive race, that this was a real race, you know, for for years now. He was saying that, uh, you know, almost immediately after the um, the Beto Cruz race of 2018. So, you know, some of us can take note, note and say it feels unusual or interesting or something like that. But, uh, you know, don't say he didn't warn us that, that this might be happening because because uh, he did. Um, we'll, we'll talk, uh, a little bit more about some of the state house races in a minute, but first let's uh, hear a message from our sponsors. Don't put down your phone to check political facts, download penhole and find the precise answers you need in just a few taps. Learn more at penhole.com. And Workify is an employee survey and feedback software that helps companies grow their people and drive their culture. Learn more at getworkify.com. Okay, so we mentioned earlier about the outside money coming into the Texas U.S. Senate race. Another area where a lot of money is pouring in from beyond Texas is in the effort by Democrats to flip the Texas House. Um, A bunch of outside groups coming in there. We can get into kind of some of that money right now. But first, uh, Cassie and Patrick, you guys had a story that ran this morning about kind of how the issues have been shaping up in this uh, this Texas House battle. Cassie, can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in these campaigns, what the what the kind of battle lines have been uh, in these races? Yeah, yeah. So Svitex and I, uh, our story this morning, you know, basically focused on the overview, uh, you know, the general through lines that are kind of taking shape in some of the most competitive races for, you know, the Texas House. And, and generally, uh, you know, Democrats are trying to, you know, press either the Republican incumbents that they're challenging or, you know, just in some in some cases, the Republican challenger who's, you know, running for an open seat uh, on health care, on public education, you know, trying to make them answer for, for votes that they've taken at the legislature before. And, you know, Republicans, meanwhile, are, are working really hard to try to portray their, their you know, their Dem opponents as as too liberal, as, as tied to, the, you know, some of the national money that's coming in, um, you know, and really trying to, to, to paint a picture of, you know, uh, you know so, some, some pretty hardline stances on issues like police funding and taxes, right? Um so, you know, one example, and this is kind of how we opened our story with this morning, is, you know, Texas Republicans have generally resisted expanding Medicaid, the state federal health insurance program. You know, Texas has the, the country's lowest uninsured rate. And, you know, it's been particularly playing out in, in a Dallas area race. Angie Chen Button is, is the Republican incumbent there and, you know, has typically not been uh, open to expanding uh, Medicaid. Um, you know, and, and, and she's now recently cited that, that the pandemic and whatnot has, has more or less changed her position. And, you know, her dem, her dem opponent, Brandy Chambers, I think, told Speedtech, you know, that uh, shock would be a good word to describe how she's feeling. Um, you've seen, you know, different issues. Uh, Republicans kind of changing their, their tune on different issues, too. Jeff Leach in North Texas recently expressing regret for supporting uh, you know, the, the quote, uh, bathroom bill, unquote, in 2017. 
Um, you know, and then uh, on the you know staying on the Republican side, uh, Tony Tinderholt, uh, you know, running in, in Tarrant County for re-election, uh, uh, typically. Uh, well, you know, he is a, a hardline conservative member, member of the, the Texas House Freedom Caucus, you know, running a TV ad uh, saying that he's on a new mission uh, to improve public schools in Texas. Right. Uh, and, you know, trying to highlight the work uh, that the legislature did on the school finance bill uh, last session, $11.6 billion into, you know, the, this, the school finance system. So, uh, you know, just an overview kind of of, of where we're all heading. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the money portion with groups getting involved, uh, you know, attacking uh, or criticizing Republicans on, on health care and whatnot. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, I was going to say, I would just go off that, you know, and fell down on, on healthcare being a big issue, at least for uh, some of the major Democratic outside groups involved in the state house fight, like the super PAC for majority. Healthcare has been their top issue. Um, and it really mirrors, you know, the strategy that Democrats used in 2018 to flip the U.S. House and that they're using again in 2020 to continue to build their majority in the U.S. House. This focus on support for repealing Obamacare and its protections for people with pre-existing conditions was really central in that strategy, and now it's very central in their strategy to try to flip the Texas House. Now, obviously, Obamacare was a, a federal law, um, but being that this is Texas, there is a lot of opposition among Republicans to Obamacare. Pretty much all these uh, you know, Republican incumbents um, you know, who are now facing very competitive races at some point in their career expressed opposition to Obamacare and, and said they wanted to fully repeal it or something like that. And so all those little errant, you know, statements and Facebook posts and tweets from, you know, past several years are really coming back to haunt them now that these uh, now that their seats are on the line. Yeah, I mean, it really strikes me when you mentioned Jeff Leach and Tony Tinderhold, how much the ground has shifted in a lot of these districts. You know, I, I think both of those candidates are people who, you know, early in their careers were more kind of concerned about their getting primaried than than being in some kind of, um, you know, competitive general election. Both of them, you know, at times in their careers have, have been associated with the kind of uh, farther right wing of the party. And both of them now are in these races that, you know, could be competitive. Uh, the, the Jeff Leach thing, um, I found very interesting that he he um, uh, that that he kind of expressed regret for that vote. I uh, you know he was the 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 lead kind of character in a, a Politico story uh, that ran this week too about the efforts to to flip the house and you know it really does just kind of show you how much these these districts are 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 changing how much the you know the political. Uh, realities in the suburbs of, of some of these big cities um, has, has really shifted. Uh, Patrick, you kind of mentioned the, the health care thing as a big one. You know, I, we're seeing that kind of up and down the ballot, right? The, this is a big thing in congressional districts, too, where you're seeing Republican campaigns, you know, making ads about how they're going to protect um, pre-existing conditions and things like that. Uh, uh, it, it really does seem like that's an area where Democrats feel like they can do some damage um, for their Republican opponents. Yeah, and, and you know the Republicans are running into this 
like political cul-de-sac basically where they, you know, okay, they say like, well, I opposed Obamacare. I wanted to fully repeal Obamacare, but like, trust me, like I support protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Um, but their party, you know, President Trump hasn't put forward a, a plan to do that. There's no policy blueprint for them to be able to point to and say, this is my alternative plan for Obamacare. And so a lot of these Republican candidates in both the congressional races and the state house races are running into what I would again call a, a political cul-de-sac where you know they, they don't have a really strong answer on how exactly they're gonna do that because their party has not done that so far. And it should be noted their party is continuing under this administration to sue to fully dismantle Obamacare in a Texas-led lawsuit. So it's even more salient in Texas. And so I think it's a it's a really uh, tough issue for them. It was in 2018 and it continues to be in 2020. Cassie, is it realistic to think that, you know, if Democrats were to win the House or even if there's a tight margin and we're seeing some Republican candidates start to embrace the expand Medicaid argument, is that a realistic goal, do you think, for the, the 2021 legislature or or does that kind of run into roadblocks elsewhere in the Capitol? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think that it would be, um, you know, the issue would effectively hit a dead end in the Senate. Um, if, if Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, you know, intends on, on presiding over the chamber the way that he has ever since he became uh, president of the Senate. Um you know, I think like another, I, I know that Medicaid expansion can get also, you know, you, you can make a really good argument for how that fits into the, the, the broader topic of responding to the coronavirus pandemic, right? The, the pandemic has kind of um, resurfaced a lot of these, you know, questions about healthcare and education and, and whatnot, maybe that haven't like previously gotten play. I think my question is, uh, you know, how are lawmakers going to end up prioritizing everything on their list? Um, first and foremost, I think there's, uh, you know, there's, there's going to have to be some sort of grappling with the, the billions of dollars in, in shortfalls that are projected to the state budget, right? Because uh, that's, that's, I think, the, uh, the only thing that the legislature constitutionally has to pass in, in its 140 days. Um, and then they also have, you know, redistricting on their plates, right? So um, if Dems are controlling the chamber, ex Medicaid expansion, I can see, you know, probably just getting a little bit more play than it would under a Republican controlled house. Uh, but again, I think it's just going to come down to, to what they're prioritizing and what, what sorts of appetites, uh, you know, state leaders have for, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of agenda that they, that they want to pursue uh, next session. Patrick, we, what does the playing field look like in a general uh, picture for the state house right now? You know, we've we've heard you know there's the 12 seats that uh, Democrats won in 2018 that Republicans are trying would like to win back. We've seen anywhere from kind of the 18 to what like 24, 26 uh, range of of Democratic targets are. How many do we see in play? Does it still feel like a realistic possibility that this chamber could flip, uh, you know, less than two weeks out from Election Day? Oh, I think objectively speaking, it's still a very realistic possibility the chamber could flip. In terms of the size of the battlefield, the assessment of that varies by the parties right now. Big surprise. Uh, but Democrats insist that they still see a pretty— a pretty wide battlefield. And you can see that in terms of where the money is going, where the House Democratic Campaign Committee is investing. Um, so they would agree more with the assessment that their offensive, you know, the, the seats that they could flip is, is close to, you know, uh, 
18 to 22 seats. Now, not that they're confident they're going to flip all those, but like that's how big the potential opportunity is. And those 18 to 22 seats, I think those are 22 seats that Beto O'Rourke either won or came within 10 points in 2018. Um, you know, that are still held by Republicans or retiring Republicans. Um, the Republicans, you know, in terms of how they view the battlefield, they obviously look at it a little more narrowly. They don't believe all those seats are in play. Um, you know, Greg Abbott's campaign came out this week and said that they're focused on 24 seats, the four open Republican held seats, um, 10 uh, seats where Republican incumbents are facing serious challenges, and then 10 seats that they'd like to flip back that they lost last time around. So clearly, both sides look at the size of the battlefield and, and the you know the shape and composition of the battlefield a little differently, um, but I think objectively speaking, um, most folks would agree that the majority is still very much on the line and still very much in play. You, you mentioned the governor. I mean, one thing that struck me in an article that you wrote recently was you had a quote. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, from Dave Carney um, Abbott's uh, you know political uh, consultant, and he. Um, he 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 seemed to be kind of acknowledging that there was a pretty good chance that that Republicans would be at least losing seats in the House, which which you know from other comments we've seen in other publications earlier this year seems to be a bit of a change in tone there, right? Yeah, I don't know exactly what he said previously, but he acknowledged what I think is you know obvious. Like Republicans are not going to have a net gain of seats this um, you know this uh, this November, even if they flip back some of those seats for, that they lost last time. You know, they're still going to lose more seats that they currently hold. Um, so I don't know if that was the most uh, you know striking admission from him. I thought what was more interesting was him saying there's quote zero chance the House. Flips. That is a pretty that's a pretty bold statement to make. Uh, you know, two or three weeks before the election, an election in which, like I said, I think everyone agrees that this is still very much a, a very real fight, and the possibility of the house flipping is, is still very real. So that was the more notable comment to me. Sure. Okay. Very good. Well, definitely a lot of interesting things to keep an eye on. Okay, and that about does it for the time we have for today. Um, we'll be back next week for the last TripCast before the election, and I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about. Thank you again to our sponsors, the Texas Secretary of State, PointSet, Pinhole, and Workify. And thank you to Patrick, Cassie, Alex for joining us today. See you next week. Talking to you.